Okay, thank you very much. Hello, everybody. I hope you can hear me. And uh, I just uh, would like to welcome everybody to this course on technology and human rights advocacy. You probably uh, read the course introduction and the syllabus on the forum. If not, I encourage you to do so. Let me just tell you a few uh, words about myself. I uh, used to be a student organizer and uh, lead one of the leaders of POTFOR, the student resistance movement uh, in Serbia some 12 years ago. And ever since I've been involved uh, in uh, disseminating knowledge about uh, community organizing, uh, organization management, campaign management for human rights advocacy. I was also involved heavily in different technological uh, uh, solutions to, to, to organizing, and I still work as a software developer in that field. So uh, I would like I would like to start the 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 the, the session by uh, taking a quick overview of the course, if that is all right with you. So. This is a course, uh, as I said, on technology and human rights advocacy, and it will last for eight weeks, uh, starting today, and if everything is okay, it will end on December 4th, uh, 2020, which is actually less than eight weeks. Uh, however, we will have an extra few days for uh, some additional work if that is needed, especially because uh, one of the things we would like to do here in the course is to develop a campaign plan, and through developing this campaign plan, we will actually learn some things about organizing, uh, especially online. So, if uh, everything is okay, we will finish uh, by December 4th. If some people need some uh, extra work, everything for them will be finished by December 10th, which is a week later. So classes, as you see, are going to be on Tuesdays, and every week we're going to have a small assignment, and these assignments uh, need to be finished 24 hours before the class, which means on Monday evening, so that I have time to, to, to take a look and uh, provide feedback before the class starts and before we move on to the next, uh, uh, to the next uh, module. So, let me tell you a few words about the course requirements. Uh, of course, you're required to do all the readings and attend classes and participate in online discussions uh, to successfully complete the course. And uh, apart from that, there is going to be a test similar to the test that, 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 uh, that you just did, with the, uh, which is a multiple choice test. And there is also going to be a written assignment, which uh, is due December 3rd, 24 hours before the last class. This uh, written assignment is actually the uh, two pages, 1,000 words, uh, and I will talk a little bit more about it, and there is more info on the forum I posted about that assignment. So, let me tell you a few words about the written assignment that is uh, important and actually necessary for successful completion of the course. The written uh, assignment is actually a campaign plan, which will contain the following elements. 
uh, first uh, campaign objectives for the campaign of your choice, uh, the campaign message with the samples for uh, slogans, uh, deliverables, and other uh, campaign material, uh, a task list with the responsibilities for, for main campaign managers and organizers, and a timeline. So don't worry about uh, the details uh, yet, because all these elements of the plan will be developed through the course. So this is going to be the way we're going to progress in the course. We're going to develop one element after another. And by the end of the course, by early December, we're going to have a full campaign. So uh, as we go through the course in technology and human rights advocacy, we're also, as you can see, uh, going to focus on skill building, especially in campaign, and especially for online campaigns and digital. So, if uh, now it's time to, to ask any questions, if there are any questions about the course, uh, and or, of course we will also any any questions that you may have later, you know, uh, you can actually post those questions on the forum underneath the uh, syllabus uh, message that I, that I posted. So. Unless there, there aren't any uh, major concerns or questions now, I would like to... There is one, okay. Okay, so if, if there are any questions about this, you know, we still have time, you know, so you can post them on the, on the forum beneath the, uh, beneath the note on, on, beneath the welcome in that thread. So let me move to the to the course. Uh, so, as, 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 as you know, we're going to talk about human rights advocacy and technology. And this is a very broad uh, uh, topic. And we will, of course, narrow it down to uh, the nexus of technology and advocacy, which is digital technology uh, campaign. But before we go uh, in that, to that level of detail, let, let, let us spend uh, some time talking about human rights, and then talking about advocacy, and then talking uh, about technology. And this is going to be the uh, topic in our introductory, uh, uh, in this introductory uh, class. So, uh, do we have any answers to the questions? I would like to invite uh, students, if you, have any if you have any ideas or thoughts, how would you, in like two or three words, define uh, human rights. Uh, this would be uh, either through the, through the chat box or, or you can actually, uh, if you want, you can, you can even use a microphone to, to answer. What would, what, would be, what would human rights be in your opinion? Okay, so, so far we have uh, two uh, comments here. Uh, uh, human rights are universal rights uh, or common basic rights that everyone is entitled to. And uh, another comment that we have is that we have a freedom to defend our rights. Anything, any more? One or two, maybe? The natural rights uh, which anyone deserves to have after his birth, basic rights that every human being 
cast of cab regardless of race and gender. Okay, this is great. The basic fundamental needs of human beings, they shouldn't be violated. A set of rules humans have decided to give each other regardless of race, age, gender, etc. The right of living in a positive situation. Yeah, now we have uh, uh, several like specific and concrete rights, concrete rights like uh, freedom of association, freedom of expression, freedom to show uh, to another people what are human rights. And then we have another comment saying, it includes the basic rights of each citizen in civilized society, freedom of thought, speech, etc. And uh, another thought which says, an atmosphere where human instincts are not violated. Well, you actually touched upon some very important elements of, of, of human rights, and these are, and I will, I will just harvest from the, from the comments that were already uh, posted here. Uh, these are common rights everybody is entitled to, so this is uh, universalism, that, that human rights are universal, regardless of race and gender, and that uh, these are natural rights that everybody, everybody uh, has after his or her birth. But there is also uh, uh, a comment here saying that uh, it includes basic rights of each citizen in a civilized society, which means that, that uh, not just that these rights are natural, but they're also have a legal basis as well. So, yeah, you, you pretty much uh, touched upon the, 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 the most important elements of, of human rights, especially their universalism, their uh, natural origin, and also their legal basis. So, let us spend, you know, a few minutes just looking at the origins of, 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 of human rights. Here, uh, we have on the on the left-hand side, uh, the Babylonian ruler Hammurabi, who was, you know, credited as a legendary lawgiver uh, of ancient Babylon. So, so even in, in the laws of the ancient uh, uh, civilizations, there, was, there were prescribed some rules, not just for the citizens, but also for the, for the rulers. And uh, the rulers, as well as citizens, had to kind of stick to these. Uh, rules and the, the whole uh, basis of legality is to uh, avoid arbitrary decisions and to avoid uh, situations where rulers will act uh, in an arbitrary way. So this is where the let's say ultimate origin of of, of human uh, rights is, uh, and uh, it took a lot of time for the concept of human rights to develop, and we can see on the, on the right, upper right side, uh, King John and Magna Carta uh, uh, episode of the English history, which is well known as one of the examples, and maybe even the most uh, uh, known and the most discussed example of a ruler giving certain rights to his subjects. So, there are many examples in uh, uh, the Middle Ages and even before where rulers were actually forced by their subjects to allow uh, certain privileges and certain rights to different, different social groups. And uh, so this is maybe the, the most, uh, let's say, well-known example at least uh, 
at least in, in, in Europe. So under, under this picture, we, we have two pictures of, of Thomas Hobbes and, and, and John Locke. And these are the two uh, philosophers of the 17th century, which uh, were, let's say, most important proponents of the concept of natural rights, which actually uh, is based in the premise that the, that the sovereignty is not based in the divine uh, rule or, 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 or is not given by, by uh, divinity, but sovereignty actually lies in the people. And, uh, and this is where the modern concept of human rights actually is, uh, can be traced in the 17th century. And the Bill of Rights in, 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 in England of the time contains a lot of these elements, and, and these two gentlemen were actually operational in, in, in the period of time. But it took uh, two revolutions to actually declare these human rights in a more uh, open and uh, more explicit way. And these two revolutions happened at the end of the 18th century. And the first one uh, happened in the United States of America. And at the time, it was uh, the 13 colonies of the, of the British Empire. And uh, in the Declaration of Independence, the founders of the United States put the following sentence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. So, this was the founding document, the Declaration of Independence of the United States of America. And uh, the rights, specific uh, rights of the citizens of, of, of this country, were later uh, listed in the section of the United States Constitution called the Bill of Rights. However, on the other side of the, of the continent, it took uh, a decade more, even more than a decade, for another uh, revolution to happen. It is a French Revolution. And as a result of the French Revolution, there was another declaration. And this declaration uh, of the French uh, National Assembly actually is the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen, which declared in the second article that men are born and remain free and equal in rights. Those rights are liberty, property, safety, and resistance against oppression. So, this particular uh, document actually turned out to be uh, This uh, particular document turned out to be of, of great importance to, to the politics of France and the politics of Europe for the whole 19th century uh, uh, revolutions, uprisings, and reforms in many countries around the continent, and not just in, 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 in Europe, but also elsewhere, were, were inspired by, by this particular, particular document. And this is the, the Declaration of the Rights of, of, of Man. So, these two declarations were the first political, uh, let's call them, documents that declared the intent 
of these two countries, uh, United States and France, that the countries will be dedicated to uh, preservation and protection of uh, human rights. In the French Declaration, it is not just the rights of citizens, but as it says, it's the right of, of man and citizen. So, so it, the basis is also on human rights, not just the rights of, of citizens of, of, of France. So, this actually opened the door for universalism. And I won't bother you with the, with the, with the details of the politics in the next 150 years, but the slow progress of various international docu documents, international treaties and conventions, uh, most, of, most notably the, the Convention of the Rights of, 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 of Child, which, which uh, was adopted at the end of the First World War, but that all led us to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in uh, 1948. And uh, this Universal of, uh, Declaration of, of, of Human Rights was the result of not just 150 years of international effort of, in promoting uh, and, uh, let's say, uh, putting uh, human rights uh, on the international agenda, but it was, and I guess that is more important, it was the result of the uh, Second World War and all the terrible things that happened, uh, especially uh, the Holocaust and the uh, and the mass uh, uh, violations of human rights by Nazi Germany uh, around Europe. So, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, we can see here uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, the widow of uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, American president, holding the first uh, print of the, of the declaration. This one is in Spanish. Under that picture, we can see as, uh, a session of the drafting committee, which drafted the, the, the declaration, and on the right side we can see the uh, moment where, when the United Nations General Assembly voted for the Declaration of Human Rights, and uh, it indeed was a universal declaration of human rights because uh, uh, all countries took uh, uh, part in, in drafting. The Soviet bloc, uh, at the very last moment, decided not to vote for the, for the declaration, actually to abstain. They didn't vote against, they just abstained in voting. And few countries like Saudi Arabia uh, didn't vote. Uh, for instance, Saudi Arabia didn't vote because uh, of certain rights regarding the uh, women's rights and rights regarding the, the, uh, the change of, of religion. But uh, most other countries in the, uh, let's say, Middle East, and, and we call them the Muslim countries, uh, they voted in favor of, the, of this declaration, one of these countries being also Iran. So, so we can say that this declaration was truly universal. But on the other hand, as the name suggests, it's just a declaration. It's not a, it's not a treaty. And the difference between declaration and the treaty is that uh, the declaration just uh, offers a statement of intent, but doesn't have any, uh, how shall I say, um, doesn't have any provisions how to implement the, the, this intent. 
So, the declaration, uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was followed by a number of treaties, and I listed uh, all of them here, and these treaties um, focus on, on political rights, social rights, uh, uh, conventions to end racial discrimination, conventions against torture, uh, conventions for the right of children, etc., etc., uh, uh, and all these uh, treaties, th these conventions, then later needed to be uh, uh, adopted by uh, uh, national governments and national parliaments of, of all the countries and to be then passed into, into law. But on the international level, the political bodies of the United Nations, the, on top the United Nations Security Council, the United Nations General Assembly, but also the United Nations uh, uh, Commissioner on Human Rights, which is uh, a body that was replaced by the United Nations Human Rights Council uh, six years ago. These bodies, as well as bodies that were established by all the treaties that, that I mentioned earlier, these bodies were actually supposed to monitor and to implement all these conventions. So, let's see what were the mechanisms for implementation of, of these conventions. Do you have any ideas? Uh, I ask the uh, participants now to, to give some feedback on this, to give some input on this. What, what were the, the mechanisms for implementation of, of, of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and all the treaties that, that I just listed? Does anybody have any idea? I'm, I think that, that, that this contribution of yours is, is, is very helpful and valuable because you pointed out to the various mechanisms uh, of, the, of the implementation of, of all these treaties and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which rely on either uh, the effort of the United Nations to monitor, to send, uh, to send teams, to send uh, observers, uh, and to create reporters, to, to send up reporters on human rights, to cooperate with, with NGOs, and at the, at the bottom, the bottom line is that it also uh, depends on the countries how they're going to implement all these treaties and how they're going to fit those into their legal legal system. So the mechanism for implementation of, of human rights is very, very complicated and it really depends on, on the, so much on the national uh, or country's uh, legal implementation of, of, of all these treaties. If we look at some uh, regional uh, treaties uh, and their bodies and their mechanisms of, of uh, implementation of, of, of these conventions, uh, we can see a very different uh, uh, mechanism of implementation. And if we look at the first example of that, which is the Council of Europe and their convention, uh, European Convention on Human Rights, which was adopted, which was adopted in 1950, and it was at the time known as the Convention on Protection of Human Rights and Fundamental Freedoms, but now it is called the European Convention on Human Rights, we can see that as, a, as one of the, uh, the most important mechanisms in the implementation of this convention is the establishment of the European Court of Human Rights. And this is an important 
uh, element of the implementation because citizens in all the countries that signed the convention, the European Convention on Human Rights, the citizens, when they exploit all the um, uh, means inside their countries to appeal to uh, uh, one court and then the uh, higher, higher instances uh, in order to defend their rights, and if they exhausted all these, uh, they can uh, refer to the European Court of Human Rights, and this court will uh, look at their case and uh, uh, will defend uh, their rights if they are violated according to this uh, convention. A similar thing uh, uh, is in the Organization of American States, which uh, established and they actually drafted and, and, and adopted uh, their own convention called the American Convention of Human Rights back in 1969, and also the Organization of African Unity, uh, which uh, adopted the African Charter on Human Rights and People's Rights. Uh, and uh, both of these organizations also uh, uh, established courts that are going to serve as mechanisms for them. Uh, but none of them is as established and as visible and as important as the European Court on Human Rights. So if we compare this to the situation that we have in the, on the global level, uh, and that is, you know, the, the, the UN level, but at the level of the United Nations we don't have uh, such a court. Maybe the ICC will at one point uh, become such a court and, and citizen on, of any country which is a member of the United Nations could maybe one day uh, file a complaint there and uh, to defend his uh, or her rights. But at this moment, this is not the case. And the United Nations uh, human rights uh, system does not possess uh, such a mechanism which will lead us to the next uh, part of this, uh, of this uh, uh, session, of this class. But before we go uh, into that, and before we answer how can we overcome this, and how this is usually overcome, uh, it is time now for you to uh, ask questions, if there are any questions about this particular, about this particular segment of the class. And no questions, I guess. Okay, so let's move to the, to the, next, to the next thing. Uh, because there is no uh, court, because there is no mechanism for defending uh, human rights, there is a, a, a greater need for different organizations, especially non-governmental organizations, individuals, and formal, both formal and informal groups to actually do the job of promoting, monitoring, uh, and advocating for human rights. And this is the role uh, for human rights advocates in the uh, situation where there is no global system for human rights uh, uh, implementation. So we turn to the next uh, to the next uh, uh, segment of this class, which is. Uh, which we open with the question, what is advocacy? So, if we can get uh, in the chat box, and I will read the answers. In few words, what do you think uh, 
uh, advocacy is. Oh, I, I see, I, I'm sorry. I, I just saw that we had a question here. Why did the Soviet bloc didn't vote for human rights? I'm not, I'm not really that uh, uh, big of an expert in, the, in, in that history, but uh, to, to tell you what, is the, uh, what was their explanation, but this was part of the, of the Cold War dynamic that was developing under the United Nations uh, in, in 1948. So, uh, so they didn't want to uh, kind of uh, be on board with the, with the Western countries, which they already saw uh, as their allies. They, on the other hand, were saying that, that they uh, de defend and protect all the human rights, which you know, you know practically wasn't, wasn't true. But uh, the, the excuse they used uh, is unknown to me. But we can, we can put this question later on the forum and, and discuss it a bit more. Okay, so let's go to the uh, answers about the advocacy. Uh, advocacy, according to the uh, answers provided here, uh, supporting an idea actively, supporting certain beliefs, lobbying, campaigning media. Okay, you read this here. Uh, fighting for your rights. Uh, yes, the answer is already there, uh, but uh, uh, but yes, I think we should ask what, which, what it is better to ask what it means. It is supporting and following human rights, defending and protecting. Advocacy means defending the human rights of citizens against whom uh, it, it violates. Support uh, is another meaning of advocacy. As one of the participants just said, I can express uh, what Tavana is doing, uh, spreading knowledge about uh, what is, is the first step, I think. Yes. And finally, we have, a, uh, we have one uh, uh, comment which says it is impossible in Iran. We'll come down, we'll come down to that uh, over this course. Yes, these are, uh, under this umbrella of advocacy, as you can see, there are different um, uh, methods of advocacy, like lobbying, campaigning, using media, making coalitions, you know, and these are different forms of advocacy. But uh, what do you think advocacy is not? It can be about almost uh, anything that is in public concern and is in your concern. Uh, however, uh, the, the methods do define advocacy, because not every activity aiming to change the current situation can be considered an advocacy. So that, that, that leads me to the next question. What do you think uh, advocacy is not? What would be a, 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 an activity that would not be considered uh, advocacy? Running for office and participation in elections not advocacy. In, indeed. That is the only thing that is uh, considered uh, not being uh, advocates. So we have we have a comment here, and I would like to, 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 to spend some time on it, which says first we should say what is human rights, and it pretty much depends on what country we are living in, and laws, etc. Even uh, then, once more, we should seek how to defend it 
in possible ways in our own situation. Indeed, uh, this leads us to the, to, to the uh, probably the most important question of advocacy, and that question is actually what is the goal of advocacy? And the goal of advocacy is exactly, and especially if we talk about human rights advocacy, the goal, the goal of advocacy is to influence uh, public policy and to influence decisions within the, the political system, social system, economic system, and within the institutions that, that, that constitute uh, a government. So, so advocacy in uh, it can take different forms, as, as we saw earlier. It is about you can take the form of lobbying, of, of, of uh, public uh, uh, media campaigns. It can take a form of even rallies, civil disobedience, different forms of, of protest. It can take forms of community organizing, uh, coalition building. But the goal of advocacy is to change uh, policy. It is uh, to influence the, the uh, decision makers in government. So they, so they change policy. In our case, if we talk about human rights advocacy, this is a policy on uh, human rights. This, uh, uh, as, as we said, sometimes it, 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 it means uh, changing laws. Sometimes it means putting an end to uh, human rights violations that are in practice. And sometimes it means uh, bringing human rights violators to justice. But it really depends on the situation, it depends on the country, and it depends on the capacity of the advocacy group to pursue uh, the human rights advocacy. And one of the things we're going to learn in, during the, the course is how to do this better uh, in terms of uh, organizing campaigns for human rights advocacy. So let, let me just spend a few minutes uh, talking about this. Uh, mechanism of change, as George Lakey put it in uh, uh, his uh, work, in his masterpieces back in the 60s. He was interested in why decision makers, politicians, leaders, uh, some democratically elected, some uh, uh, more authoritarian, how do they change uh, their policies? How do they change uh, their uh, behavior and their uh, position? And he actually, you know, points to, to three different mechanisms, as he, called, as he called them, mechanisms of, of change. The first mechanism he calls conversion, which is, as he says, the genuine change of heart. That means that uh, the ruler, the, the decision maker, the politician, is uh, faced with uh, a protest, a petition, some sort of an effort, and then he... Uh, actually decides that he was all uh, he was wrong all along and that these people are right and then he decides to change his policy and this George Lakey called conversion and this is a genuine change of heart and as we all know this happens so rarely that uh, it is clear only because of theoretical uh, reasons uh, that this this particular mechanism of change is here the second mechanism uh, that he points out to is the mechanism of accommodation. And that is uh, that uh, 
the ruler or the decision maker is faced with some sort of a public pressure and he or she decides to accommodate this public pressure through negotiations, through compromise, through certain steps in the direction of, of the proposed or, 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 or change that is pushed for. So the dictator, the ruler, the democratically elected uh, 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 politician, it doesn't matter, decides to make certain changes not to fully satisfy those who are looking for change, but kind of to, 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 to make some sort of a uh, compromise. Uh, and the third mechanism he points out is coercion. And this is when politicians, uh, governments, uh, more or less democratically elected, are forced to change their policies as a result of public pressure. And this is often the result of, of uh, non-violent uh, broad-based movements that pressure governments uh, to, to back down and, uh, and to change their policies. Uh, on these three uh, uh, mechanisms of change, Gene Sharp later in 1990 added another one, which uh, he called disintegration. And this is the situation where actually the institutions don't uh, respond to the pressure and then they uh, collapse as a result of a lack of response. And this is with what we see uh, happening when governments fall down because they never uh, accepted the need of the people for reform. Because we saw in many uh, situations in the last, let's say, 10 years, where uh, people uh, are actually at the very beginning of the, of the struggle just asking for reforms. But because the governments uh, don't have an ear for that, then later uh, they are forced to step down. So that leads to total disintegration of, of institutions. So if we look at the, at the mechanisms of change, of course, uh, uh, conversion will rarely happen in this world, and uh, disintegration is not very often either. So in most cases, the reason why policies are changed are a result of accommodation and coercion. Of course, uh, after, this is, uh, after this happens, many politicians are going to say that they had a genuine change of heart and that actually they were supporting that policy from the very beginning. But this is just a politician's talk. Uh, I remember one of my friends uh, from South Africa. She, her name is Janet Cherry, and she was one of the organizers with the uh, Union of Democratic Forces, which is the broad-based movement that was fighting against apartheid in the 80s in South Africa. And she told me that after uh, uh, the change, when talking to people who were supporting uh, apartheid and who were actually loyalists to the apartheid regime, uh, many of them uh, not just that they said that they were against apartheid all that time, but they sincerely believed that. So they went through this psychological transformation that they even forgot the fact that they were supporting such a regime for all those years, and they were actually genuinely, they genuinely believed 
that they were uh, that the apartheid was a, was a uh, immoral, unjust system, and that they were against. So it is very interesting that people uh, actually uh, believe that they're going through a conversion when they were actually going through a, a, a coercion, or in the case of South Africa, uh, there was there were elements of accommodation and compromise as well. So. It is, it is, we, we will discuss maybe more about these mechanisms of change in the, uh, at the forum, but it is important here to, to, to note that we are rarely talking about conversion. We are rarely talking about genuine change of heart. When we're dealing with policymakers, we are, uh, as advocacy groups, talking a lot about pressure, talking a lot about uh, uh, coercion, and we're talking a lot about uh, uh, need for uh, later negotiation and compromise as this pressure mounts to the, to the point where, where it is unbearable. So, let's, let's look a little bit at the, at the, at the paradigm for, uh, for uh, human rights advocacy. For, for, for many years, human rights uh, advocates in many countries were faced with the policymakers that didn't want to listen to them. And the main ally they could look for was international community. International community could apply diplomatic pressure, Diplo uh, international community could uh, provide necessary assistance, and the international community could elevate things to a level which uh, actually makes the politicians very difficult to, to um, resist. Uh, this is especially true for individual cases uh, of very, uh, how shall I say, uh, uh, well-publicized human rights violations of, of dissidents during the Soviet times where the, the the case of any particular dissident would be elevated to a level uh, internationally where uh, for the government would, there, there would be no other way but just to let this person leave the country and, and, and go. So this, this at that time was very, very much used way of human rights advocates. So human rights advocates were communicating, if we can say, with the policymakers of their countries but they were also, and maybe sometimes even more, communicating with the international community. And this established this uh, indirect pressure uh, uh, element in the, in the whole dynamic. So, uh, for instance, uh, direct pressure would, would be on the rela relation between human rights advocacy group and the policy but involving international community is actually bringing uh, an important ally and adding to, to, to this pressure. But in many cases, especially recently, this uh, uh, element does not help. Sometimes it even hurts. And uh, sometimes uh, the international community does not have the necessary uh, diplomatic uh, uh, capacity to pressure a certain government. For instance, if I look at the, at the case of, of, of Serbia, where, where I was uh, working back in the 90s, the, by the end of the 90s, 
uh, all the diplomats left Serbia and uh, and uh, there was no significant uh, international presence in Serbia which actually meant that that uh, the diplomatic pressure uh, on on Milosevic regime became weaker and this was certainly the case after the bombing of Serbia and when uh, uh, actually uh, all the western countries practically declared war on 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 Serbia and where Milosevic was even indicted for war crimes which actually closed all the doors of or, and all the diplomatic channels so it became impossible to rely on international community to defend particular cases of of human rights violations in in uh, in, in Serbia because the channels all the diplomatic channels were completely closed so this this is an example of 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 uh, uh, let's say a country under under uh, the state of war and in uh, kind of big uh, with big conflict with the, with the international community but there are other cases where where international community doesn't uh, does not help and there are cases where the international community doesn't want to help for instance just look at the uh, the just compare situations in Libya and in Syria, for instance. In in Libya, international community was very quick uh, to to get involved in the conflict. Uh, we can discuss whether this helped or not, but they were uh, very quick to get involved in the conflict between Gaddafi and the and the and the protesters and later the the uh, rebels. In the case of of, of Syria. Uh, after more than a year, the international community is still uh, not uh, getting anywhere near they were in the in, in the case of Libya, and we can say this is because of the different interests and the different uh, uh, interests of, of of the Western countries uh, and different international uh, position of Syria. But this just shows that sometimes uh, you just can't rely on the international community because they don't want to get involved. Uh, this is certainly true if we look at uh, uh, human rights violations in countries which are close to uh, certain, let's say, uh, big powers and where they can actually, where they're allowed to do things uh, just, because of, just because of that. Uh, so, and, uh, again, uh, relying on international communities sometimes uh, not the wisest thing to do. So, to move from this old paradigm to the new one, we will look at a, a, a different uh, situation where instead of relying on the international community, human rights advocate relies on the public. And this public participation actually will provide this necessary pressure uh, that will force the policymakers to change to change their policies. Which, what does this mean? This means that uh, uh, the community organizing and the coalition building are becoming a very important element of human rights advocacy effort. As important as documenting human rights abuses, as uh, lobbying, as as reporting, uh, community organizing and uh, Having relations with the with the with the general public is becoming uh, 
more and more uh, important. And these two don't, uh, they don't exclude each other. And uh, the fact that the human rights advocates are relying more on the general public doesn't mean that they need to stop uh, communicating and including international community in the, in the in building of, of, of this pressure. So this just means that, that relying on, on, on community organizing and relying on coalition building is becoming a more and more important part of the of the uh, human rights advocates. So this is evident. If you look at if you look at the human rights uh, advocacy efforts in the in the last 20 years, you can see this increase in public support, public participation in these efforts. Then, when you look at certain efforts that, that were happening back in the 70s or in the 80s, but if we ask ourselves why is this so, why did this uh, change happen in the last? Uh, uh, 10 years or, or, or more, why this paradigm shift? Uh, I'm going to quote uh, Jessica Matthews from her seminal uh, article, Power Shift, where she, and uh, uh, we, we will discuss this more on the, on the forum later, but in this article she's actually talking about the change in the global civil society in the, in the last couple of years, which led to the power shift, uh, which, uh, weren't, uh, which were the result of, uh, as she says, computer and telecommunication revolution. So let me, let me just quote her. The most powerful engine of change in the relative decline of states and the rise of non-state actors is the computer and telecommunications revolution, whose deep political and social consequences have been almost completely ignored. So, practically, what she says here is that uh, the technology allowed for this public participation in human rights advocacy. It wasn't a, a small group of human rights advocates who uh, had access to resources, who had access to contacts, who had access to maybe uh, uh, the international community or, or uh, anything that, 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 that gave them this privileged status, and they would be running the Human Rights Advocacy Act. Today, with the, the use of information technology and, 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 and computers and internet, we actually can have much broader coalitions of people, both formal and informal, that are going to be engaged in this effort. And this is what this course is going to be about. So. You know, when Jessica Matthews wrote this uh, article, this was still in the late 90s, and, and this technology uh, looked very promising. And it was even called the uh, liberation technology by Larry Diamond. And he defined liberation technology as technology that enables citizens to report news, expose wrongdoing, express opinions, mobilize protests, monitor elections, scrutinize government, deepen participation, and expand the horizons of freedom. So, this is a very optimistic uh, uh, take on the role of technology. It was questioned later by many authors, and this is one thing we're going to talk about uh, during the course. But 
I just want to, at this point, emphasize this uh, new element in the social and political dynamic uh, in the, practically in the whole world. And this is the computer and the internet, and everything that, that, that the computer and internet revolution brought. And that is the possibility of people to connect with other pe people, to uh, look for ideas, to disseminate information, which, which is now more decentralized than ever before in human history. So, one thing uh, that, that we will discuss uh, uh, later in the course is the dynamic between uh, the governments and regimes who want to prevent uh, people from using these technologies and the ways around. And this has been an ongoing dynamic uh, all over the world. And uh, people who are trying to, to use this technology to expand freedom and people who are trying to use this technology to, to diminish freedom, this is a, an ongoing battle. But even this battle proves that technology, and especially Internet and, and the computer information technology, is the battlefield where uh, this, uh, especially freedom of information battle, is, is being uh, waged. So, I gonna, we're going to spend a few minutes on, on, on this particular segment on, of advocacy, and especially the, the change that happened in the, in the, in the last 10-15 years when it comes to advocacy and, the, and, the, and its use of, of technology. So, uh, everything that, that, that we covered so far, are there any questions or comments? I see here there is a, there is a comment uh, uh, that the only example of, 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 of conversion, of the genuine change of heart, is uh, Philip of Denmark in 1849. So, this would be an interesting uh, uh, thing to, to talk about later on the forum. I, I'm really interested in this particular uh, example. But uh, are there any other comments or, or, or questions uh, about this segment concerning advocacy, concerning the, the methods and mechanisms of change, and concerning the role of uh, technology in this paradigm shift? Uh, that, that, that happened when it comes to, in the last 10 years, 15 years, when it comes to human rights. Okay. Can we say that sanction is also a mechanism to advocate human rights? Uh, sanctions as the tool of international community cannot be considered a form of advocacy per se, because it is not the tool of the human rights advocacy group. They cannot perform sanctions. However, human rights advocacy group can uh, push for sanctions. It can actually ask the international community to implement sanctions. Uh, we will see, uh, we can discuss on the forum more, uh, and, and we will see later the examples of, of, of different human rights advocacy groups and, and their efforts uh, for that. But uh, so far, you know, just to answer this question, the Human Rights Advocacy Group cannot, by itself, uh, perform any, any sanction. What should we do if we don't want to ask our questions publicly? Uh, well, if there are any questions that, 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 that you might have, there is on the forum, there is a private message 
uh, box and then you can actually use that uh, use that to it's a private message system. Why the international community here heard the Libyan people but they can't hear the Syrian protest here? This is indeed very troubling. This question troubles me too because the Syrian conflict is going on for such a long time and it's very devastating. The, 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 the pictures that we see from coming out of Syria and the uh, accounts that we hear coming out of Syria are very uh, uh, troubling. And it is indeed, uh, the situation is indeed different. And the, the, the interests of the international community, especially big players, are different when these two countries are concerned. There is also the difference in, in the position of regional uh, players and their involvement in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the conflict. For instance, in the case of, of Syria, you can see that the, 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 the regional context is much, much more complicated than the, than the context in, in, in Libya. And so some of the big powers that were pushing for, uh, even for armed intervention in Libya, are now hesitant to push for something similar in Syria. And, and I mentioned France as the example. On the other hand, you can you also see that, that there are elections in the United States, and the United States doesn't want to, to take any leading role. So, so we, can, we can discuss this uh, in, in, in greater detail, but, but the bottom line is that relying on international community is not always uh, uh, going to... Uh, the international community does not guarantee that it will answer the calls for help. So, this is a, yet another reason why to rely on uh, creating the internal capacity for, 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 for this particular uh, human rights. So, let's move to the next question. Uh, for instance, there is a question here, human rights advocacy should really prevent action to get radicalized, and I would like to hear your comment about this issue. Indeed, this is, when, when we talked about uh, mechanisms of change, uh, and the fourth mechanism that was added, the, the, the disintegration of institutions. This is actually uh, what uh, a successful human rights advocacy effort should avoid. It should actually lead uh, the country and the society out of the conflict through uh, pressuring the policymakers and through negotiation and accommodation rather than head-on conflict that is going to lead to a disintegration of uh, the, the next question uh, is uh, do I plan to map my talks to the situation in Iran in particular yes indeed actually this is an introductory uh, session so we're talking about concepts of technology human rights advocacy and human rights but uh, the, the, the later as we go into the into the uh, course, it will be more specific, and you are going to help me with that, because you're going to provide me and the, the rest of us with the, with the uh, necessary elements for this. Okay, so let's go, uh, let's go to the next, uh, let's go to the next uh, section of this, and that is, what is technology? Okay, so any 
thoughts about what, what is technology in few words? What would be your definition of, of technology? Easier ways to resolve bigger problems. New way of solving the problem, exactly. I think we, 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 uh, we actually, new way of solving problem, easier way to solve problem. Okay, so uh, for the question on, on, on Libya and, 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 uh, and everything, we, we, we can discuss that later on the, on the forum. I would like to move on uh, to the next. Uh, another definition, uh, using science to make things more, uh, do things in more appropriate ways. Mankind invention of tools to manipulate nature and interact uh, with the world. Indeed, this is technology. It is uh, the use of tools, procedures, uh, ways things are done, way things are done, science, uh, to solve problems or to improve the existing solution to problems. Because the, uh, any, any solution to the problem can uh, have a, a more optimal uh, solution. And this is why technology is a, a dynamic feature of, of human activity. There is a problem, you use technology to create a solution, but then you use another technology to improve this solution, and then on top of that, uh, a solution can generate its own problems which requires technology to, to, to solve them. So, in, uh, for instance, if we look at information technology, which is what we're interested in, the problem that needs to be solved is uh, dissemination of information. We need to spread information to uh, a greater number of people, and we need to do it in a way that is quick, that is efficient, and that doesn't lead to many distortions. So when people were communicating things to one another, you know, through language and by, by word of mouth, there was a lot of distortion and the process was very slow. So writing actually uh, solved that problem and allowed the, this information to be disseminated more quickly and more, uh, the information was more correct. There was less uh, error. However, this solution was not the final solution, and uh, the next solution came with the printing press. And the printing press actually uh, allowed uh, the solution to be even uh, more efficient with less errors, and uh, it could reach even more people than, than any written text ever reached before. So, when we talk about technology, as, as you correctly put it, uh, it is about solving problems. And if we talk about information technology, it is about uh, solving problems of information dissemination. So, the main, the main question here for us, as uh, somebody who is interested in technology in human rights advocacy effort, is do we go for high technology or low technology? Do we go for writing or for the printing press? Do we go for... Uh, do we... What is the optimal technology that we're going to choose for, for, for this uh, particular effort? And this question is different for a technology provider and for a technology user. There is... Uh, this distinction is that 
sometimes the technology provider is going to go for a high-tech solution, but the technology user is going to uh, skip that. And he's going to, the technology user is going to stick to a low-technology solution because of the circumstances or because of the cost or because of the uh, security considerations or for any, any reason that, that, that the technology user may be uh, important. So, uh, talking about high-tech or low-tech solutions, of course, technology providers would want us to use high-tech solutions and the latest uh, technology. Uh, but we have to see as users if uh, this high-tech is very really optimal for us. Also, when we talk about information technology, the user of information technology is both the information, in, in, information giver and the information receiver, the disseminator and the recipient of information. So, when we talk about optimal technology, uh, optimal information technology, it is a different question what is the optimal information technology for a disseminator and what would be an optimal information technology for a user. So, uh, to illustrate this, we will look at the, uh, several examples of, uh, of uh, uh, technologies. And so, I'm going to ask you a question and you will answer with the A or B. Uh, upgrading from one technology to another. Who needs to upgrade more? Or who actually bears the most cost of upgrading, the disseminator of the, of the information or the recipient of the information? So if we go from a printing press to a telegram, who invests and upgrades more? Let's, get, let's have some, some answers here. Okay, so most people think it's A. It's actually the disseminator of, of the... Of the, of the Okay, and uh, from, a, from a telegraph to the telephone, who needs to upgrade more? Well, both, exactly. <laughs> but, uh, but coming from a, from, a, from a telegraph to the telephone, they, they both need to, to, to buy a telephone, of course. So, from a, from a telephone... Okay, so we have, a, we have one, one uh, uh, person here who thinks that none of them needs to upgrade from the telegraph to the telephone. That is, that is if you compare the cost of the, of the telegraph. However, uh, let's, look at the, uh, let's look at the shift from the telephone to the radio. Who needs to upgrade more? Uh, when, when the dissemination of information is shifted from the telephone to the radio. Does, is this the, the, the person who is receiving or sending radio signals? So here we have uh, mixed answers, disseminator, recipient, disseminator, both. Okay, and what would be the, the, the cost of upgrade 
from the radio to television, who would bear more costs? Okay, so now we have uh, answers which say mostly both, and uh, you say it's, 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 the, it's the recipient. Okay, we, we can now go from, from, the, from the television to mobile phone, where actually similar to the phone, where actually both, both sides need to, need to uh, uh, upgrade in the same way. And uh, we also have the internet, uh, which both disseminator and recipient need to have more or less the same sort of upgrade. So, as we can see, I mean, this is not the, the idea of, of this uh, small exercise is not to provide correct answers because the cost of upgrade can uh, differ from a situation to a situation. But it is um, to, to show and highlight the differences between different technological advances. Because when we talk about the, the advances from telegraph to telephone, uh, this is one-to-one -one communication. When we're talking about the advances to radio and television, we're talking about advances where one disseminator of information by switching to a radio as a form of communication can reach out to a lot uh, more people than uh, any of the previous uh, technological advances. So when we talk about uh, the cost, we should also talk about uh, the benefit, for, for, for the, especially for the disseminator who is making this job. But we should also take a look at the recipient, because the cost that the recipient needs to make may sometimes be the cost that is going to prevent us from choosing a particular technology. And this was certainly the case of the mobile phone, in 1981, when uh, mobile phones were introduced, and for the next 20 years, mobile phones could not be used by, by a great number of people. So, making the technology uh, shift in 1981 to a mobile phone would be uh, disastrous for information dissipation. But making it uh, in 2001, is uh, not a bad idea at all. So, we, uh, we will uh, look at the last one, which is the Internet. The, the, the important thing about the Internet is, unlike television or radio, you do not require greater investment, greater cost, as a disseminator of information. Practically, when it comes to technology, uh, when it comes to equipment that you need, to use internet, you practically make the same investment as a disseminator and as a recipient of information. And this is what makes internet and computer technology so uh, important in democratizing the, the, the information technology uh, because of that. So, this is especially true with the transition from Web 1.0 to Web 2.0. And this is something we're going to talk about in greater detail later in the course. But so far, you know, the, the 
Web 2.0 and the and the shift from uh, uh, from static HTML to uh, more content management system solutions actually opened way for a for two-way communication where people would not just read websites but they would also create websites much more easily than in the 90s. It created a much more democratic uh, uh, situation on the web. Uh, users of the web became much more active and the, the whole web became much more dynamic and collaborative. And so this is the change that we witnessed in the last uh, less than 10 years as, as the web 2.0 became uh, the norm and the standard and opened the, the, the doors for social networking and, and video and, and all kinds of things that, that, that we now take for granted. So we're going to talk about it uh, uh, during the course. So uh, I would like to open the floor for final questions about especially concerning uh, technology. And uh, the discussion that we started now, uh, we're going to continue on the forum. And there, it, this discussion is going to touch uh, the issues of uh, human rights. It's going to touch the uh, advocacy as, a, as, a, as an issue. And also the, the, the last one that we touched, which is technology. So are there any uh, questions now? Okay, if not, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be asking you some questions uh, on the forum. And uh, uh, very soon after we finish this uh, uh, class, I will, I will post the initial questions on the, on the forum to, just to, to, to start the discussion. Okay, there we have a question here. Uh, how can we customize solutions for every country? This is, this is exactly where, where the, this course is going to be heading. We're going to be looking at uh, at, the, at the recipient. The recipient of information is the most important element of, of, of this uh, effort. Because using information technology without uh, 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 looking at the, at the recipient leads to a dead end. And there are many examples where, where uh, great technological solutions were introduced and then nobody or hardly anybody uh, would use them because they were too complicated or because they were too obscure or because there was a simpler uh, solution to 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 the uh, that was doing the same the same thing so this is a for instance an example of that would be google wave which was announced as, as a few years ago as something that is going to revolutionize the the communication and it's going to put email uh, very email underground. The emails will not exist anymore because waves, Google waves will take over. And so we watched those uh, presentations and we all signed on to, to use Google waves. But the, the technology behind it and, the, and especially usability of Google waves turned out to be uh, impossible to, to, uh, to use and people didn't use it. And I, and I have to say, I, I really like Google Wave personally, and I thought it was a great invention. However, uh, it, it just didn't have any, didn't stand any chance with the, with the emails that, that were already functioning as a, as a means of communication. 
So, so we will look at the, 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 the different solutions and, and see uh, uh, how can we use technology that our recipients use rather than uh, trying to, 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 to force them to, to, to use. Uh. And yes, the, what about filtering? The, the, some, some governments are uh, using filters to, to hinder the recipients. Indeed, this is an important uh, uh, question and, and we will definitely spend some time on it later because there are ways to go around filters. However, the majority of users don't know how to go around these filters, which means that the audience for our message becomes very limited because most of the people that we want to reach are behind those filters and they can never, they can never come and... and, and uh, and, and, and be exposed to our messages. So this is an important uh, question, and I would like us to spend some more time on this question uh, later as well. And yes, we will talk about how to expand the, the, the recipients uh, of the message, and not just to expand the recipients of the message, but how to turn them into disseminators of the message. Because this would be, and I'm giving away uh, you things from the course, this is the way to, to go around uh, these filters, because filters work on uh, centralized uh, uh, networks much better than on decentralized uh, networks of disseminating information, and there are a few examples that, that, that we're, going to, we're going to look at later, how to use especially social networks uh, to go around filters. Okay, so... I will not hold you uh, for long anymore. I just need to uh, tell you a few things about the assignment for the next week. And this assignment is due Monday, October 2nd. Because I would like us to focus on specific uh, human rights issues. And instead uh, of having me uh, giving you something arbitrary or something that is uh, not very how shall I say, uh, relevant, uh, I will ask you to find a human rights issue raised in the recent past, let's say last year, two years ago, something relatively recent, so we don't go too far in history. And then uh, I would like you to pick a story, which is a written news article, it's a blog post, it's a film documentary, a short video, whatever form, but it's a story about that human rights issue. And I would like you to, to uh, pick this story and analyze this story in 500 words or less. That's, that would be around one page. And explain in this analysis why this story uh, caught your attention. Why were you attracted to, to, to this particular story about this uh, human rights issue? How did you discover this story? And what was the impact this story had on you? So, I would like you to, to, to write, to, to, to do a little research on this and to, to have this uh, written by next Monday, October 22nd, so I can actually take a look at, 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 the, at the stories that you wrote uh, on Tuesday and, and provide you feedback before the next class. Because in the next class, we're going to 
focus more on the uh, human rights uh, uh, issues through the uh, effort of storytelling, which is the, probably the first most important element in getting to all these recipients of information that we talked about and turning them into later disseminators of, of, the, of the message. So, uh, what, what I gave you here as an assignment is already uh, uh, in the syllabus, so you can, you can read it there. And I will also post it later separately on the, on the website, so you can actually uh, take, a, take a closer look at this particular assignment. And you have until next Monday to, to work. And we will continue our discussion on the forum. I'm going to take a look at some of the questions that were not answered now. And maybe, you know, we will be able to, to talk about them more in the, uh, on the forum. So let me take a look at one more question here, uh, which says, do you think the technology sometimes stop us to get freedom? Example, now in Iran, everybody sits in homes and nobody goes out and exactly 30 years, when, 30 years ago, when we, don't, we didn't have technology, people had a revolution, and now we can't have a revolution. Well, we are going to talk about uh, that too. This is an interesting uh, uh, question, and uh, I will collect this and other questions, and, uh, and uh, later tonight I'm going to turn them into a, a discussion points for, for future discussion on the on the forum because I think we will get a lot of interesting thoughts there uh, when we are not pressed with that. So thank you very much. This would be the end of the first class and probably the most boring one because we had to cover all these theoretical uh, concepts of human rights, of advocacy, of technology. But as we go uh, deeper into the course, we're going to focus more on, on on concrete, specific, and practical uh, things. Okay, thank you.